Good morning. Good morning. to see everyone, and it's good to have Denton and Taylor back from their vacation, and hope you all had a wonderful time. Uh, their, their son looked like he had a wonderful time. He looks a little red. Uh, so uh, it's always cool when, uh, to get away and be with family and, and friends. Um, and uh, so we are in the book of Revelation chapter 3. Uh, before I get started, I want to um, make a little bit of an announcement here. Uh, this Thursday, we are doing, are starting our summer growth group, and uh, so that will start at 6.30. We'll do it here. We'll uh, spread the chairs out a little bit so we're not close to together, but we are going to do it in person. We want to have a time to be together. We want to be able to fellowship with one another um, and, and spend some time in God's Word. We are going to go through the book of Spiritual Disciplines, and we're going to talk about um, reading God's Word and prayer and evangelism and different things, and so helping one another uh, and encouraging one another in the spiritual disciplines. So please be a part of that. You'll be encouraged uh, and equipped through that. Um, also, we have a few other things going on this summer. Just want to let you know of. We have a, we have two book clubs. We have a women's book club and then like a general book club. Um, and so if you have not received those inf information about that, I'm going to encourage you as you exit um, when we're done, as you exit that door, there's a, a piece of paper in that little cart right there. Uh, it'll have the big Redeemer logo on it. On the back of that piece of paper, you'll see all the information that you need. Um, obviously, they're also on the app and on the website, so please use that so you're aware of what's going on this summer. Um, and we want to make sure that we are seeing one another, that we're, you're being encouraged through God's word. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so take part of those if you're able. Uh, all of those things will be on Zoom as well. Like, you know, the, the, we will have it on Zoom as well on Thursday, so if you online or you're kind of hesitant about coming that's okay we will have it on zoom and so you can partake that way as well um so revelation chapter three i'm going to read this and then i'm going to pray and then we will get into this passage the last three letters to the seven churches here starting in chapter in, in verse one of chapter three of revelation and to the angel of the church in sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet... You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in, a white, in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will not, never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews... And are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because 
you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial and that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. And to the angel of the church, Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you would either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither not hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those, who, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, stand, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you so much for these seven letters that you, have, that you gave to those seven churches in Asia. While they, you're speaking to seven distinct churches in Asia in the first century, Lord, you're speaking to us as well. Lord, teach us, convict us, strengthen us in the gospel, strengthen us as a people unto yourself, help us to be a body that recognizes our head and our king and our Lord, and recognize that we are members of the same body. Help us, Lord, to recognize that. Help us, Lord, give us wisdom Renew our faith in you. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us, Lord. We pray that you would be with them, be with their families. Be with those who are traveling this summer. Be with those who are dealing with sickness, dealing with struggles on different levels, Lord. We pray for them as well. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray for churches that are starting to meet this week or making plans to meet this month, Lord. We pray for them as well as they organize and gather. Lord, give the pastors wisdom. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so a, a few, I can't remember. I think we, we went to Disney World, I think it was last February, I believe. And um, I got to meet one of my, my, my boyhood crushes. Um, this is going to be kind of silly, but I got to meet Mary Poppins. She was like my boyhood crush. Like, I loved Mary Poppins. And I, will, and I still love Mary Poppins. Um, and we'll uh, gladly uh, watch the first movie, the one from the 60s, and the new one. I enjoy the new one as well. I'm not one of those Mary Poppins uh, fans who only the new, only the old, and the, the uh, Julie Andrews one is the only one. No, no, no. I, I, I enjoyed the newest one as well. 
enjoyed the music and, and uh, watching it with my, my kids and stuff. Um, and one of the songs in the newest movie, uh, Mary Poppins Returns, there's a song um, called A Cover Is Not the Book. And I think it's my favorite, my favorite song in the particular uh, uh, movie. But I want it's a it's a nice little number. If you I don't know if it's on Disney Plus yet, um, but or some streaming sites. But I want to encourage you to watch it. It's a very clean movie. You can watch it with your kids. But there's a song in the movie, that, and this is the part of the movie where they go into kind of the animated world, right? It's the same in the, the you know the old version where they go into the the kind of make believe world through the painting on the street and they dance with the penguins and they, you know that, that that kind of thing. Well, they kind of do a similar thing, but a different kind of world. And, uh, and so Mary Poppins, and I can't remember the, the character's name that, um, uh, that in, in the movie, but they're kind of singing a song, um, and they talk about uh, a cover is not a book. And so the way that the song goes is, Uncle Gutterberg was a bookworm, and he lived on Charing Cross. The memory of his volumes brings a smile. He would read me lots of stories when he wasn't on the sauce. Now, I like to share the wisdom of my favorite bibliophile. He said... A cover is not the book, so open it, open it up and take a look. Because un, under the covers, one discovers that the king may actually be a crook. And so they tell these three different stories of how certain characters seem certain ways, but actually are the opposite. Um, there's a story of a tree that seemed dead and barren, but actually when the spring came, it bloomed, right? It wasn't barren anymore. So we, we, tend, to, we tend to judge things based off what we observe and what we see, what we hear, not recognizing that maybe our assumptions are wrong. Maybe what, is, what seems to be true is actually not true. And I think you get this theme in these three letters here. You, things seem one way, but actually that's not to be true. Um, so the title of this uh, sermon is The Cover is Not a Book. Um, and let me read... Um, the main idea, I always like to, to do that, the, the main idea is that all churches in the age between the resurrection and, the, and Christ's return must rely on the power of the Spirit alone through the gospel for endurance to remain faithful as one until the end. Kind of a way to summarize that, kind of a bigger, maybe a big idea is what lessons can we learn from the triumphs and failures of the past? What, can, what lessons can we learn from the tri triumphs and failures of the past. And so, just to kind of present a little context here, just to kind of remind us of what happened in the first four letters, is that these letters are dictated by the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, to his servant John through the seven different angels. These angels kind of, kind of oversee these churches. Jesus is presented... In, with his, in, his, in his attributes, he's basically, every one of these letters, the introduction to these letters is a different attribute of the risen Lord that is presented to us in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Uh, let me read that uh, just to kind of remind us. So John so hears this voice, in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hair of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like varnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In the right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth 
came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining in the full strength. This is the risen Lord that is presented to John, who's now speaking to these seven churches. We're always reminded of who's speaking to us, because, again, every letter introduces us to another attribute of the risen Lord. And I think this is an important thing we need to get straight here. I don't know if you caught this as we've gone through these seven letters, or as we've gone through these seven letters. And I want to, um, I want to get something straight. Because I hear this often, that Christianity is not about politics. I hear this a lot. And I understand what people are saying. Uh, I, I think I get what people are saying. But here's the, here's the deal. Christianity is all about politics. It's all about politics. If you read these seven letters, you get this hint. You know what the political order is in the church, right? Christ is the king. That is a political order. Christ is the ruler over the church. There is no democracy in the church, okay? There isn't, Jesus doesn't ask us what we think. He doesn't ask us how he should rule. Why? Because he's Christ Jesus. He's the son of God. He rules. He has the scepter in his hand. We, anyone who says that Christianity in the church has nothing to do with politics is dead wrong. They need to read Revelation, or better yet, the entire New Testament, starting with Mark chapter 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God. A kingdom is political. A kingdom has a king. A kingdom has a throne. It has a power. A church is a political assembly. A church is an embassy that represents a kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. A church publicly represents King Jesus, displays the justice and righteousness of the triune God, and proclaims the good news that has come into the world. That's what a church does. That has everything to do with politics. Now, I understand what I mean politics. I'm not meaning Republican and Democrat. I'm not meaning who's in the White House and who's in Congress. I'm telling you who's actually an authority and the Lord over the world, and that's Christ Jesus. And he's obviously rules and has authority in his church. And we proclaim that kingdom. We proclaim the kingdom of Christ that is in the world. I want to even make this point a little bit better. I was reading an article on Friday in the Wall Street Journal, and there was an article about the gospel of the church in China. And what China is doing right now, in the midst of what's going on in the United States with Black Lives Matter and covid What's going on right now with the, with the Chinese church is the Chinese government is in the process of writing their own Bible, their own Quran, and their other, other religious documents. So basically they're writing those documents in their own language and their own understanding of the Chinese Communist Party. If that doesn't like just make you want to cry and vomit. Like, and when I read that, I'm like, oh my gosh, they want to literally rewrite the Bible in their own words. Here's why they want to do it. I want to read this. The reason why they want to do it, to create a new version of Christianity sheared in all of its transcendent visions and values. Why are they wanting to drain Christianity of its soul, of its spirit? Here's what the article said. Christianity's transcendent vision and transcendent values present the Communist Party of China with an insuperable moral and ideological rival. Rival. They see Jesus as a rival. 
If you don't think Christianity is about politics, you're not understanding the world. Chinese government thinks it's political. They see the church as a rival to their values and to their own vision. If Christianity is to survive in China, the country's Christians will have to summon the virtues that sustain the faith and other times of persecution. What is the sustaining power in the church between the age of the resurrection till now? It will also be true till Christ returns. Faithfulness to the gospel. Not theological purity, not tolerance with cultural morality, but faithfulness and uncompromising reliance on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to sustain and be persevered through trials and tribulations. So point number one is, what you see and hear, is that always what it seems? What you see and hear, is that always what it seems? This church, the church of Sardis, is a church, this is kind of point number one of the subpoints. a church that seems alive but is spiritually dead. A church that seems alive but it's spiritual. This is verses 1 through 6. So again, this letter here in verse 1, we're introduced to Jesus. We're introduced to the risen Lord. He is the one speaking uh, through the angel to John to these churches and to the church of Sardis. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What is these seven spirits, seven stars? What does this mean? That this fullness of the Holy Spirit, Christ gives life through the Spirit. And Christ is the one that grants and gives and sends the Holy Spirit to the church. To provide relief and to provide counsel and power to the church is through the Holy Spirit. And Christ is the one that grants that and sends that. And the seven spirit, stars, stars representing the angels over the churches... Churches are heavenly or a heavenly existence. The church is not just a physical existence. We're not just pews in a building. That there is a heavenly existence. There is an angel that looks over this church. It's an important note as we move further into Revelation, the heavenly existence of the created world. That there is the world that we live in, the physical world, but there's also the spiritual world, which Christ is obviously ruling over and king over and lord over. The church models the worship in heaven of Christ around the throne. When we get into chapter 4 next week, we'll see this lesson in doxology on how to worship. What happens in the heavenly throne room of God is how we all show should model worship. They cast their crowns before the throne, don't they? They cast their crowns before the throne. They really, who is the worthy one on the throne? Christ, not us. They cast their, their, their crowns before the throne. Holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, they said. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is what they sing to Jesus on the throne. We, that is the model of how, the lesson on how we should worship Christ as well. The power of Christ and the rule of Christ over the church. If he is the king, the church is the physical manifestation of his rule. Again, this is not a democracy. We're in a kingdom. We have a king. We don't come here and do whatever we want. 
We, what do we do? We manifest the kingdom of Christ. We proclaim his kingship and his lordship. For the church are those who were once rebellious subjects and now redeemed by his blood and installed them as citizens within his realm. Then tasked with displaying Christ's kingdom of grace and compassion and unity, giving the church his spirit to this end. And if a church deviates from the task and focuses on other tasks, he play, we are, they place themselves outside the rule of Christ Jesus. That's just what is going on in these seven letters. These churches have gone outside the rulership and realm of Christ. They're no longer manifesting and proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. They're deviating from the task, focusing on other tasks. So Jesus says to this church in Sardis, he says, I know your actions, that you have a name, a reputation, that is alive, but you're really dead. What do we know about the city of Sardis? The city of Sardis was a central city in the Persian Empire before the Persian Empire you know, died and went away and the Roman Empire took over later. But now has become relatively insignificant at this time. A, a city that I was thinking of when I was thinking of was a city like Detroit, Michigan, right? In the 40s and 50s and 60s, Detroit was one of the hotbeds and one of the wealthiest cities in our country. And now it's lost a lot of that value. It's lost a lot of that significance. It's not as much of a significant city in American culture or economic, the economy in America. But yet Sardis was still a major industrial center due to its geographical position near the junction of several major Roman roads. So there was quite a lot of wealth in the city. There was quite a lot of wealth in the city because of all the, all the, uh, the um, uh, commerce that was coming through Sardis because of it being located near all these Roman roads. So he says, so there's a lot of wealth in this city. Um, and so he, Jesus is saying, is, I know your deeds and your, your actions, what you've done, your, but that, that have a, has caused you to have a positive reputation. So basically, it's a church and a people that have done a lot of good deeds. They have a great reputation. People speak well of the people. They speak well of this church. They're well known for their good works. They're, they have a great reputation in the community. They have a community outreach church. It's got great programs and activities. If there was a newspaper back then, they would give it a five-star rating. We had a five-star rating for a church. Pastors well known and revered, respected. It's a growing church in terms of people and money. It seems alive. It seems positive. They have a good reputation. But yet Christ calls them spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. They seem alive, but in actuality, they are dead as doornails. They're dead. They're a paper tiger Christianity. They're a paper tiger church. They look good. It seems good. It feels good. What you hear is good, but in actuality, it's dead. Beautiful on the outside, but underneath rust and a dead engine. Busy with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. Lost the singular task. The reason a church exists is to proclaim the heavenly kingdom of Christ. The gospel is the creator of the church. The gospel is the purpose of a church. The church, a church of Sardis, has fallen into superficial Christianity. It's superficial. It's all about external things. 
It's all about what they've done. It's all about their activities. It's all about their community outreach. It's all about all the things that they do, and it's not about the gospel, and it's not about Christ. They're known, and that gets back into American Christianity, which is very superficial. And people, if you went on the streets of New York City or somewhere else and say, hey, how would you uh, describe American Christianity to someone who's a non-believer? I'm pretty sure Chick-fil-A would be mentioned. I think politics of some sort would be mentioned. I think Southern culture would probably be mentioned. Do you think really we want to be known for those things? Don't we want to be known for the gospel? Those are superficial things. They're superficial. May make us seem like we are strong. It may seem like we're alive, but we're actually dead. It's not the gospel. Jesus says, be awake. Strengthen what remains and remember then what you have received and heard. What remains is Christ. They are on the verge of destruction. And the only little thing left is Christ. I mean, that's all they have. Is there? It's a church. So obviously Jesus is speaking to Christians. And so what they have is their conversion in Christ. They have their, their testimony of their being once sinners and now redeemed by Christ. And their only thing that they have to rely on in their, in their verge of destruction is the Spirit's life-given power. To remind them of what they first love, Christ and the gospel and devotion to him. And guys, Christ calls them to repent. He calls them to repentance. He says, you need to repent. You need to go back and remember the gospel. You need to remember Christ. You need to remember me. You need to remember your sin. And you need to repent and receive the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that there's a few people in Sardis, there's a few names in Sardis who have not defiled themselves. So obviously another issue going on in this church is that they have compromised the gospel to be cool, to be relevant. They have this great reputation in the community. And Jesus says, you've defiled yourself. He says, there's a few of them who haven't defiled themselves. Those who have not adapted themselves to luxury and pleasures of their culture. He says, those few will walk with me in white because they are worthy. The reward of faithfulness to the gospel is the presence of Christ. The perseverance and faithfulness to the gospel. These few must proclaim and teach the gospel to the spiritual lethargic others, right? These spiritually lethargic others who are fallen into superficial Christianity, into nominal Christianity, need to be brought back to the gospel by these few. So when we have people in our midst who are struggling, who are spiritually lethargic, who are, are, are relying on this superficial, nominal Christianity, we need to preach the gospel to them. Not ignore them or let them fall in their sin. We need to disciple one another, help one another, encourage one another in the gospel. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. White garments are speaking of purity. The emphasis here is adhering to the gospel, persevering in the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, suffering for the sake of the gospel, and what is the reward? The reward is Christ. The reward is clothed in the purity of Christ. The reward is the assurance of being in Christ. The reward is being known by Christ. He says, I will confess to you before my Father. To be known by the Son of God, the King of Kings. The second church is a church that seems insignificant but is powerful. 
church that seems insignificant but is powerful. I love this church. When we were talking about it on Monday night, I couldn't stop talking about this church. A church that seems insignificant but is powerful. So what does Jesus start with? He says, I am the one who is holy, who is truth, or who is true, who has the kings of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. He starts off with, Jesus is God. He's the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One. He has the kings of David, the keys of David. He determines who will enter into his kingdom. And, and this, this entire letter is put in the context of the Jewish people, the synagogue of, if he calls synagogue of Satan. But these Jews, who what? Who think they're the true people of God, right? Who rejected the Messiah, who rejected Christ, who think their adherence to God's law and being a part of the, being, who they looked at Abraham as their father, they think they're the ones that are in the kingdom because of their blood, and because of the law. And Jesus is saying, I have the keys of the kingdom. I have the keys of David, and I will determine who will be in my kingdom and who will not be in my kingdom. And who does he share the keys to? He shares the keys of his kingdom to the church, Matthew 16, 19, to be the witnesses of the kingdom, to be leaders in his church. And he says, I will set before you a door which has been opened, which no one is able to shut. And he's speaking to this church of Philadelphia. This church in Philadelphia was being persecuted by the Jews. They had little power, insignificant in the eyes of the world. Make sure you co correspond that with the church in, that we just read in Sardis, right? Church of power, church of wealth, church that is now spiritually dead, as, as Jesus said. Now you have this other church in Philadelphia, insignificant, small in power. This is not some cool branding, branding church, no multi-site church, nothing significant about it to draw much attention. It's a small church, but it's faithful to Christ. It's a faithful church. A door has been opened before them by Christ. They have been given the power to be in Christ's kingdom. They've been given the opportunity to preach the gospel and make known the greatness of Christ Jesus. This insignificant little church. That seems insignificant. That seems so, that's not blessed by God. But yet Christ looks at that church and says, you are faithful. You are good. I, 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 I'm opening the door to you. And you will have opportunities to make my name known. Christ Jesus is telling this to this church. He said, I will set this door before you. The door has been opened before them by Christ. The Jews will come through the witness of this church to repentance, it says. It says here that, that this church will, that, that the Jews will, will see this church and see their faithfulness to God and their love for Christ because they have kept their word that the, the Jews will come to them in verse 9. They will make them come and bow down before their feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They will come to worship Christ through this insignificant little church. You see the transition going on here? Who are now the people of God? This little church in Philadelphia. Who are not the people of God? The Jewish people. Who are the new Gentiles? It's not the, it's not the Philadelphian church. It's these Jews. Who are now the people of God? This little insignificant church. 
insignificant people. So that they may know that I loved you. Christ uses this insignificant church to make himself known. While small, they are powerful in the power of Christ. They kept his word. They did not deny him, his name. Their power and significance is granted by Christ, not by man. This church is insignificant. It's small. It doesn't have a lot of money. It's poor. Nobody knows their pastor. Nobody knows the people there. They're not, they don't have necessarily a great reputation. No one praises their name. And we tend to say that that's where power comes from. But that's not where power comes from. Power comes through God, Christ. He's the one that grants power and significance. It's Christ. Trust in the gospel at all costs. By the gospel, we will make Christ's name known. By the gospel, unity will take place. He says to this church in Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come on the whole world. The Philadelphians, there's going to be, a, uh, there's going to be some tribulation, some persecution, either in the city or in the, in the empire. The Philadelphians will experience it, but they will be kept secure through it. They'll be protected during this trial. They'll be strengthened. They'll be purified. They'll be sanctified through this. But who is the testing really for? The testing is for those who dwell on the earth. The purpose of God's actions is judgment. And what happens sometimes in judgment for those who are not believers? They are hardened to God. If you want to take this COVID-19 stuff, here's what's happening going on. Either people who are Christians and who love Christ are being what? Sanctified through it. They're being purified through it. And those who do not love God and do not love Christ and do not love the gospel are what? Hardened to God by it. That's what God does in things like this. He purifies and sanctifies and grows people closer to him and then he draws people further away. To him who conquers... I will write on your name, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, eternal unity with God and fellowship with his presence. They will feel God's presence with them. They will understand and experience Christ's presence with them. And as this small insignificant church in Philadelphia, it's a church that has been given the, the authority to be an agent of the gospel under the kingship of Christ. The last church here is the church that seems wealthy but, is, but was poor. A church that seemed wealthy but was poor. Jesus starts off with this letter, the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He's not talking about the creation of the world. He's talking about the creation of the new creation. He's a witness of the new creation through his resurrection from the dead. What do we know in verse Chapter 1, verse 5, he's the witness and the firstborn of the dead. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he was dead and is now alive forever. Colossians 1, 18, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is what Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking about the new creation, uh, which is through his, his, own, his own resurrection, that there's a new world order, there's a new age that he has issued into the world through his resurrection. And this church here, is wealthy and rich, 
But Jesus says you're actually not cold nor hot, but lukewarm. And I think this passage has been weird. Like the interpretation of this verse is odd. Like how, what does it mean? Is he saying cold is good or is it bad? As he say it's like what is he talking about? Well, I came across um, a, a few different uh, explanations of this passage that were really helpful. That kind of dealt with the geography of the of the area. He said that there was two cities near. Um, Laodicea named Hierapolis, Hierapolis, uh, and it was a city of hot springs. They had a lot of hot water, and people would go there for health reasons. There was another city called Colossae, which had cold water, and this water was from the area that people would drink the water. It was clean, but in Laodicea, they did not have water in the city. They had to have water brought into the city, and so the water was dirty and lukewarm. And says that they were like the water. They were not spiritually beneficial. They did not impart spiritual blessing on anyone. They were lukewarm. They were dirty. Water, if you drank it, you would want to vomit it out of your mouth. They had no spiritual benefit to anyone. Therefore, Christ will vomit them out of his mouth. They say they're rich and wealthy and lack nothing. But yet they've associated with a corrupt system. They have compromise the gospel to be relevant with the culture. That's why they're wealthy. That's why they're rich. They've made business agreements and they have created associations with the pagan world. They're consumed by materialism. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? After that, after, he says, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what happens when your pursuit is wealth and riches. You cannot make the gospel centered in your church. That's what's been going on. They may have, in this particular age, they probably didn't have a beautiful building. But if it was in our age and this church existed, they would have the most beautiful building in town. Because they had the money to build it. They'd have art decorating this grand interior. Money to spend on additions and ministry programs and institutions. But prosperity is not a sign of faithfulness or a sign of God's blessing. We need to be careful with the language of God's blessing. We need to be careful. Because what we do in our society, because we're so superficial, we'll say, well, God must be blessing them because their building is bigger than ours. And look at all their programs that they have going on. We think, well, God must be blessing. And that church down the street that's small, insignificant, not very important, God must not be blessing them. That is totally whack. It's not right. It's not right. This letters teach us that. The wealthy, the wealth with a stumbling block to faithfulness. He says, Jesus said, actually, you're not rich and you're, 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 you're not uh, uh, wealthy, but you're poor, blind, and naked. You're holistically broken. You say you're rich, but actually you are so poor, you have nothing to, to, uh, to, to, to stand on. You're so poor. You're so pitiful. You're so naked and shameful. What does Jesus say? I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, while white garments and eye slops. They need a complete remodeling of their soul. It's interesting he mentions these three things, right? He mentions clothing. He mentions, um, he mentions uh, garments. I mean, it's garments. He mentions money. And he mentions eyes. They need, new, they need new discernment. They need holiness. They need spiritual awakening from their poverty. 
And where is this going to happen? Where is this going to come from? It's not going to come through some like remarkable conference or program. It's going to come through Christ. The things that Christ says they need is what? Gold? But Jesus is being presented as one with a golden sash. They need, they need what? They need white garments? Well, Jesus is the one with white hair. They need new eyes? Jesus is the one presented with eyes like flaming fire. They need Christ. That's all that they need. Churches don't need more money. They need more of Christ. They don't need bigger buildings. They need more of Christ. That's what they need. And I love that he ends this here. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Remember when you read this letter, who's he talking to? He's talking to a church. So when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, he's saying, I come to renew fellowship with you. To love you once again. So that you would find satisfaction solely in me again. This is like Song of Solomon's. Verse 5, those who, I mean, he's, it's like a loved one saying to his, to his bride, I'm here to love you. Let's renew fellowship together. Those whom I love, be zealous and repent. This is a call of renewal, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to the gospel, to make his name known, and to be a faithful witness of the new creation. Jesus is saying to his bride, Laodicea, please be renewed with me. Renew fellowship with me. Of course, we don't know what happens, but that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this to his churches. Love me. Trust me. Make me the focus of your worship. Make, you, make me the focus of your fellowship in how you do church. And I think this is helpful as we end this, is that if you take all these seven letters what is the major theme in all these seven letters? Is the gospel. Don't make other things a priority. Make the gospel the, the priority. The theme of the gospel. The gospel must be supreme in the church. You cannot compromise the gospel of Christ. If you compromise the gospel of Christ, you are like these five churches that Christ has issues with. You cannot compromise the gospel. Why? Because he rules the church. He holds the scepters, not us. I don't hold the scepter of this church. Ditton doesn't hold the scepter of this church. Robert doesn't hold the scepter of this church. None of you in this room hold the scepter of the church. Christ does. If any of us start to take the scepter, we should be thrown out. Because why? Because that doesn't, that's not how it happens in his kingdom, in his church. He has the right to do with each church as he pleases. He calls us to be faithful to the gospel, to be witnesses of the gospel. And what happens when we do that? When we make his mission our priority and his teaching our priority, his rule our priority, his presence our priority, and his kingdom our priority, Christ is going to gather together in his churches different people and different maturity levels and different backgrounds and pasts. People with different strengths and weaknesses. That's what's going to happen. You can't control that. You can't manipulate that. It will happen when you make the gospel the focus of the church. And Christ will make it beautiful. While it will be a mess. Why? Because you put people from different people groups and different uh, backgrounds and different strengths and weaknesses. It's going to be a mess. But that's okay. 
because Christ is the one who did it, and he's the Christ is the one who's going to make it beautiful. Christ deserves all the praise for all that as well. Now, a church can be a mess for the wrong reasons. It can be a mess for the wrong reasons. We see this in all these different churches. The church in Ephesus was a mess. Why? Because they relied purely on theological perfection. That they lost, then they forgot their first love. They struggled. I mean, a church relies on compromising with the culture. That's a mess for the wrong reasons. Reliance on superficial things that give the impressions of vitality. Reliance on wealth and resources. But there are reasons, good reasons, right reasons for a church to be a mess. A church that comes together in love when feelings are hurt. That's hard. That's a mess. But it's a right reason for a mess. Struggling together. Struggling together. Dealing with struggles. Dealing with mourning together. That is a mess. Doing life together. Ministering in different contexts. Getting on our knees together and crying and, and laughing and fellowshipping. That is a good thing. And it's a mess. But Christ makes it beautiful. The gospel creates this. Christ's rule and presence in the church creates this. When we are a church for all generations... All races united in the gospel alone, we are a faithful church. You're faithful. When we made the gospel the focus, nothing else. And maybe, maybe this church will never be the richest church in town. Maybe we won't be the coolest church in town. Maybe we won't have the most baptisms in town. And maybe we won't have any of our staff that has a Twitter following or has really interesting YouTube videos. Who cares? But if Christ is present here, if we're reunited in the gospel alone, and we are blessing the people with the gospel, this is the church that I want to be a part of. That's just the church I want to be a part of. When the gospel is supreme, when the gospel is the focus, that's the church that we should strive to be a part of. And I think that's the lesson from these seven letters. That's the lesson to make the gospel the center in the church. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you so much for this beautiful seven letters that you've given us. How they have challenged us in so many ways. How they have um, shaken us in ways as well. You are speaking to your churches and some things you say are difficult and harsh. But Lord, we, we get the message. We get the, 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 the thing you're telling us to open our eyes to and see. That to make the gospel the center of the church. To make you, Lord, the center of our doing and our task and our worship. To make you the center and not to be distracted by other things. And recognize, Lord, that fruits of the gospel and fruits are the things that we can get, we get excited about. Lord. When you bring families together, when you start to sanctify people, when people start to make holy decisions in their lives, when people start to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel to their friends and neighbors and their coworkers. Well, those are beautiful results and fruits of the gospel. Lord, may we make the gospel the center of our church. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to take the Lord's Supper.